If there's one belief that unites most education reformers, it's that teacher unions are an obstacle to constructive change. Critics charge that unions dominate education politics, negotiating contracts that make schools impossible to manage, while at the same time opposing efforts to create new options for families. My guest today shares those concerns, but argues that there's another side to the story, one that reformers would do well to keep in mind as they seek to enhance the level of academic rigor in American schools. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Robert Moranto, professor in the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas, editor of the Journal of School Choice, and an elected member of the Fayetteville, Arkansas School Board. Bob's also the author of the new blog post, Strange Bedfellows, Why School Reformers Should Rethink Teacher Unions, which you can find on the journal's website at educationnext.org. Bob, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Hi, Marty. It's great to be here. Really appreciate it. So you're a busy man. You teach, you edit an academic journal, you've written or edited 14 books, and I believe you have two kids at home. What led you in 2015 to run for the local school board? Well, my, my wife and I had paid a lot of attention to the local schools for, for years. We'd lived in the town about seven years at that point and sort of knew our way around. And we're, we're, not, we're not completely happy with the direction they were going with in some respects. Uh, we thought they were de-emphasizing academics some, and, and that, was, that was actually helping the local charter school, which had a long wait list. And so one of our favorite school board members announced she was not running for election. Uh, she's in Arizona, and we sat down with her and spent two hours to try to convince her to, to run. And we said, we'd run your campaign. You'd have to do anything. And she's very persuasive. By the end of the two hours, she had convinced us to uh, consider running. And uh, we, we met with the person who was sort of the designated heir apparent by the powers that be in the town. And he's a great guy. He's a wonderful person. But he... He had no understanding of our concerns. Um, he was not thinking about closing achievement gaps. He was not thinking about challenging our most, our smartest, most motivated kids. Um, his concerns were finance, facilities, construction, um, et cetera. And that, that's kind of typical of school boards and of school administrators as well. I mean, the secondary thing for, for years, um, I'm the endowed chair in, in leadership. I spend a lot of time talking to professors of educational leadership, and, and they're, they're great people. Um, I consider many of them friends. What strikes me is that it, most of them are not that into the academic side of the enterprise. They're, they're thinking more about finance, about construction, about uh, satisfying basic requirements. They think a lot about loyalty and teamwork, which makes sense. I mean, imagine if, if your job may depend on school board elections, which have 6% turnout and therefore are pretty, pretty unpredictable. Um, they they don't think as much about whether kids are learning. They don't think as much about closing achievement gaps. Um, it, it's just not their thing, and that's not what they necessarily valued when they were at school. So um, April and I, uh, well, April ran my campaign. My wife ran my campaign. I ran um, essentially running on an academic platform, and uh, in a big upset, won. <laughs> so, um, actually, we had twice the usual turnout for the election. We had six percent. The usual is three <laughs> percent. So I guess people like that message. And you write in this new piece that at one time you shared most reformers' belief that empowering administrators and disempowering unions would lead to better academic outcomes. But that belief started to erode as you spent more time in schools and in particular once you joined the board. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's an interesting transition. And, and something I would urge ed reformers to do is 
spent time in schools, uh, spent a lot of time in schools, and not just in big cities. I mean, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Washington have very little to do with what happens in, in most of the country where the dynamics are, are very, very different. And so actually, well before we ever thought about running for school board, um, something that we realized in many districts, including ours, is that um, teachers teachers are sometimes terminated. They're very, very, almost never terminated for bad teaching. They're terminated for moral turpitude or perceived disloyalty. And, you know, we all agree moral turpitude, that, that should be grounds for termination for sure. Perceived disloyalty, um, I've seen some very good people who got in trouble, people who were doing a great job in the classroom, but perhaps questioned policies in some, in at least one case, it's a kind of a dumb policy, um, in ways that superintendents or principals regarded as being disloyal and then got in huge trouble. Um, so something I realized pretty quickly was that if I were if I were a teacher, I would be a union member because it, it affords you a certain amount of protection. Uh, we don't have tenure as such in Arkansas, but we do have the Teacher Fair Dismissal Act so as a process. And if you have uh, legal counsel during that process, it would be very, very difficult to terminate you um, unless there was a, an actual merit-related cause. If you don't have legal counsel, um, other things may crop up. Um, by the way, something that has struck me five years ago. I can't tell you, my district has about 740 teachers. Um, I can't tell you exactly how many are on improvement plans. It, it generally meanders now between four and seven. Um, but I can tell you it's more than any other district in the state. That's what people in Little Rock tell me. And I can also tell you the number it was five years back. Five years back, it was zero. We had no teachers on improvement plans because we didn't, we did not discipline or terminate teachers for bad teaching. This is typical in both union and non-union environments. Um, Arkansas, the unions are quite weak. Uh, 20 years ago, my town got rid of collective bargaining, so that wasn't the factor. The factor was the culture of that leadership is not oriented towards emphasizing the importance of teaching and learning and holding people accountable for that. And, 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 so, and, and by the way, like I said, we have a few people on improvement plans now, and the union has not I mean, they they represent people as they're supposed to, but none of the union activists that I know have questioned that. They agree that uh, if you're not doing the job in the classroom, we do need to try to improve you. And at the end of the day, if we can't, terminate you. It's interesting. Oftentimes, the fact that very few teachers are on improvement plans are uh, subject to termination because of their performance is blamed on unions, but you're very clearly placing the blame on administrators, and that's just one of the ways in which your writing on this topic is is not generous to administrators. You note that they're overwhelmingly male, even as teaching remains an overwhelmingly female profession, and that many of them are former athletes. Why is that a concern? Yeah. Well, the, the it, you have to look at, and again, I'm, I'm actually kind of a you know centrist, kind of libertarian-leaning Republican, so it's weird for me to be defending a teacher's union. And, and I would say that if you're looking at big cities, if you're looking at Washington, D.C., if you're looking at Chicago, probably the union, the unions there, which have a lot of power, are the biggest obstacles to termination. But in, in places like mine, where unions are quite weak, it, it's really more a matter of, of administrators. And, and in fairness to them, ed schools, we don't train them to do that. 
most school districts, unless it's a large district like mine, you don't have a general counsel, so you don't have legal help, and you don't have training, and the general culture is kind of get along, go along. So if you were actually trying to hold people accountable, you'd be going against the culture of, of, of leadership and to some degree of teachers. Um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. You were saying um, oh, the, the athletic influence, it kind of dates back from early 20th century when educational leadership was being developed as a field. That was a time when professional meant male. Um, and so part of, if you were to go back 130 years, most principals, and, uh, and uh, I believe at that point most superintendents were women. Not in big cities, but in most places they were women. Um, the effort to professionalize that leadership, part of it meant graduate training, those sort of things. Part of it meant attracting men, because in the ideology of early 20th century education, schools were supposed to be factories in, in which male factory bosses were bossing around female teachers, that is, factory workers. So how do we attract those men to this traditionally feminized job? One of the answers was raising the profile of athletics and athletic coaching. Uh, and so it's, it's sort of a tradition in much of the country. We have national data on this, actually, that if you want to be a superintendent, if you're male, and three-quarters of superintendents nationally are male, um, the best path forward is be a secondary teacher and coach then be a secondary principal, and, and then become a superintendent. Um, and that's just sort of a regularized process through it. I mean, coaches, they have a lot of visibility. There's a lot of management. Um, it's regarded as sort of more macho things. School boards tend to kind of like that. Uh, it's regarded as a position of authority in a way that a teaching position might not be. So we have this, this sort of personnel pipeline that for men at least, and, and most of the top leaders are male, tends to run through coaching. And they're, they're great guys. They work hard. They like kids. Um, if you ask them about their favorite game, they'll, they'll, they'll give you a great story about it. If you ask them about um, their favorite academic class, it, it, it might be a less interesting conversation. That's just not where their, their hearts are. And it's really kind of ring a bell for me way before I was on school board about seven years back. Um, I was talking to an administrator, like a great deal, a good administrator, and um, you know, he was saying that my kid wouldn't really be part of the school unless he tried out for football. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I mean, football is great. It means a lot to a lot of people. I mean, my high school is five football teams. I've never questioned that. Obviously, uh, you know, ninth grade, junior varsity, the varsity team. Um, uh, but that's not all school does, right? There, there are, there's the academic side of schooling is, is actually quite important. And um, in many districts, the athletic department, Head may have more power over who gets a, a job than the heads of the academic unit, um, and and this does reflect. I mean, people people will support what they themselves liked in school, right? And if your fondest memories of school were playing, you're going to prioritize that over some of the academic parts. Unions, in my experience, tend to be a, a push against that. Unions are generally run by secondary teachers, not elementary teachers. Who, who tend to like kids, but also uh, tend to have a bit more dedication to their academic field, whether it's whether it's social studies, math, foreign language, whatever it might be. And so I think they're often sort of a useful pushback against admin. Admin will often sort of define academic success as having a high graduation rate. Um, you know, that, that may not reflect student learning. I mean, we can corral a lot of kids through that graduation walk, who may not have learned very much. 
Um, and, and so I, I do think that a lot of times teachers, and particularly unionized teachers, may be on the side of improved academic achievement. Um, but again, all politics is local, right? I think one of the one of the lessons I've learned is that is that really all politics is local. Uh, by the way, when, when I ran for office, the union had to endorse another candidate, and I get that. But first off, he was expected to win. But second off. Um, nationally, I disagree with the union on a great many things, including on certification and on school choice. Um, but it struck me two of the most active members of the union did a lot of work to help get me elected. <laughs> and uh, since then, I've probably been known as, as the union's best friend on the board, frankly, because, um, first off, I, I think that if you just dictate to teachers, you're not going to get great teachers. Great teachers want to have some role in the workplace, especially over student discipline, which is something where ed reformers like me and unions tend to, to agree on, but also in terms of who you hire. Do you hire somebody because they're politically connected or because they're a great coach, or do you hire them because they're the best teacher you could get? On those things, at least locally, reformers can often find common ground with unions. Um, another really valuable thing that unions do. My district is not huge. It's about 10,000 um, uh, kids at 17 school buildings, just over 10,000 kids, 17 school buildings, about 1,500 staff. But it's big enough, honestly, so that I and other board members, and even central admin a lot of times, don't have a good handle on what goes on inside school buildings. Um, our 380 union members, roughly half of our teachers, do know. And so by keeping good relations with them, a lot of times I'm able to get an insight in that how we may be passing policies on the board that to us make sense, but when you actually look at implementation on the school level, they they may not work so well. They may not make sense. Something I'm really happy about, by the way, the current school board president, the current superintendent, have actually several times in the last year listen to teachers, and modified policies in, in ways that I think will be a lot better for kids. Um, if I were to go back two superintendents ago, that, that never would happen. Uh, it was much more top-down, much more of a traditional factory model. Um, and I'm kind of going on and on about this. It's kind of, you know, again, all politics is local. Something else about that, oftentimes you'll have administrators who, frankly, are, are, are just plain dishonest. Um, We've had to fire two key administrators in the last year and a half uh, for very serious uh, ethical failings that, that also were contract violations. And in each case, something that struck me was that central admin had no idea that these individuals were problematic. Um, I knew they were because uh, I have good relations with the unions, I have good relations with a lot of teachers, and they were telling me things. And, and in one case, as a, as a parent involved in special ed, I, I see some things I thought were concerning. Um, and, and so I, I kind of had a, a heads up on this before other people did because I was listening to our people on the ground level. One thing I've been able to get in our strategic plan is we're going to be surveying teachers and parents and uh, anonymously and uh, having room for comments. So we'll get a sense of those things. Um, a lot of times people are understandably afraid to report it when they see unethical behavior. But if you do anonymous surveys and if you build trust with people at the building level, you can learn things that you wouldn't have otherwise. And, and having a good relationship with your teacher's union can, can help in that process. Is that always good? No. I mean, I've seen situations in states where unions have too much power 
where unions would use that to sabotage effective administrators they disagreed with. Um, but in in my state, where unions are quite weak, I think it's there's generally much more to be gained by building those relationships than by not building them. And in general, I found over time that 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 how the local union leadership will judge a particular leader generally will will correspond to the decision to the to my own judgment over time. They mostly want people who are going to be open and above board in their in their dealings with teachers and merits because if not. We're just helping our competitors. We're helping the charter schools and the private schools. In hearing you talk about surveying teachers, getting their perspective right now, and in reading your piece, I was reminded of a classic article by economist Caroline Hawksby that was one of the first empirical studies of the effects of teacher unions on public schools. She starts out in that article by outlining two different models of the role of unions in education production. In the first, they use their voice to improve the quality of education, while in the second, they use their voice to pursue economic rents, raising the cost of schooling without improving its quality. We often think of these two perspectives in either or terms as alternatives, when in reality, they may both be operating at the same time. Is that one way to understand your argument in this piece? And you know, if so, is it possible to strengthen the positive impact while limiting their negative influence? I think that I think that's absolutely correct, and I think the way I would frame it is, going back to James Madison, any faction, if it gains too much power, is going to seek monopoly rent, right? <laughs> so I, I think that where unions have too much power, they have tended to behave in ways that were, were not good for children. Um, but I think conversely, where administrators and school boards have too much power, sometimes they have behaved in ways that are not necessarily good for children. I think that you need you need a mix. And I would, I would throw in a second thing, which is more of a sociological argument. Um, Karen Huxley is a wonderful economist, and I, I think he's done some great work. But I think another way to look at this is sociologically. People who go into ed leadership, they're, they're, you know, again, they're great people. They work hard. They're not, they're not as into the academic side of the enterprise. Um, surveys, that have, national surveys, that have, and, and perhaps they shouldn't be. Uh, national surveys uh, done by the National School Board Association and others, American School Board Association and others, have shown that um, if you look at academic achievement, that's only the, the fifth or sixth criteria on which school boards judge superintendents. Um, finance comes first. Facilities comes comes before that. Safety comes before that. Um, uh, do we like you <laughs> is actually the number one. Do we have collegial relations with the superintendent? If you look at academic, whether kids are learning, whether it's test scores or graduations or graduation rates, those things are usually around number fifth, sixth, seventh. So I think you have that that problem. But I think you have a second problem. The people who really are into the academic part of this tend to stay in the classroom. People who get promoted to vice principal and then principal, the, the, the median high school principal is actually about a, de- a decade out of the classroom is never going back. They don't value academic achievement as much. And so sociologically, I think unions, when they don't have too much power, can represent those academic interests. For example, in fighting to maintain um, teaching time uh, rather than than spend all our time in in socio-emotional learning and pep rallies and any one of a number of uses that, 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 frankly, a lot of administrators would prioritize over teaching time. I wonder how this perspective that you've developed through your work on the school board 
has informed how you've evaluated recent developments in union policy. In recent years, we've seen efforts to curtail teachers' uh, collective bargaining rights in places like Tennessee and Wisconsin. We've seen the Supreme Court in its Janus decision prevent unions from collecting representation fees from non-members. Are those the kinds of changes that are needed to rein in unions where they've become too powerful, or are they changes that are actually going to be counterproductive because of the role that you've seen unions play in your area? I think that I think that those are mostly good changes, and I think in the long run those could actually make unions more effective in, in this way. Um, again, in Arkansas, you, you can actually fire teachers. We, we, it might, and my district started doing that a little bit, but in general we, we don't hardly ever do it, or at least not for the right reasons. Um, I think that if we transition to a model where uh, schools are deregulated to a greater degree, where superintendents and principals can actually run their schools, um, uh, that actually is going to make unions more important because it will mean that where there's bad leadership, and there will be bad leadership in some places, I'm going to very much want to want to sign up for the union because um, their representation will offer me a protection against unfair firing. Um, firing for reasons not related to how I'm doing in the classroom, um, if that makes sense. So, I mean, I actually think that I, I approve of the, the efforts in general to, to clip back the power of unions somewhat. But I think we need, I think union people need to think of how to reshape that relationship so it's one that it makes sure that administration doesn't abuse its power while at the same time understanding that administration does have to have power to shape the buildings to help kids including the power of hiring and, and sometimes firing. Now you frame your article as a defense of teacher unions, but another way to read it that has really come through in this conversation is as a critique of administrators and perhaps also as a critique of the public for allowing ineffective principals and superintendents to hold sway. You're a professor of education leadership, and so I know you could talk about this all day, but uh, briefly, any ideas how we can strengthen administration? Uh, this is going to sound flaky. I mean, one thing I would do is get rid of the, the EDD requirement or the master's requirement in, in ed leadership. Um, I think that, and it's interesting, I'm having an RA look at this now. It appears that America is among the only schools, is among the only nation states that has a separate ed leadership track where you, you, know, you get the graduate degree and you punch this ticket and you punch that ticket. Um, in in most of these systems we admire, the social distance between the principal and the teacher, between the superintendent and the teacher, is much less. And sometimes people even, as they do in some American charter schools, go back and forth between roles. I think that would be a much healthier environment. So I would I would get rid of a lot of those requirements. Frankly, that would also open the field to more women. I would also encourage us to develop models where you get a Cracker Jack teacher, and they could try out being assistant principal on a temporary basis for two years, give them some combat pay during that period, and if it doesn't work out, they can go back to being a teacher with nothing lost. I think we need to look more at those leadership sort of models. I also think that the, the EDD, honestly, is not a good idea for a few reasons. One is, I mean, I always joke that every EDD I know insists on being called doctor, whereas I've never met a physicist who insists on being called doctor, Right. A lot of the value of the degree is symbolic. The, the standards do not seem incredibly high. It's something that people who think they might want to be leaders do to punch their tickets. I think if we were to make that a less essential 
part of the system in terms of how the personnel model works. We get a broader range of people going into it, and, and maybe not staying in it, maybe in for a few years in the record teaching, but going into it. But secondly, I think that there would be less ability for people to intimidate civilians saying, I'm Dr. So-and-so, therefore I know X, Y, or Z. Because there, there isn't really a firm basis of knowledge in the field. It's not like physics. It's not like medicine. Um, and until there's a firm basis of knowledge in the field, as opposed to informal practice, I think having that more or less required graduate education is, is counterproductive. It's, it's not necessarily getting us the people we want in leadership, but it's sort of intimidating regular citizens and policymakers from holding their leaders accountable, if that makes sense. They think, oh, you're the expert. Well, you're not necessarily the expert. But I'm fond of saying a tendency I've seen oftentimes in schools, and, and Rick has really showed this in his wonderful book, Spinning Wheels, a leader will come in and say, I'm the expert. You have to do it this way. So we have to go to block scheduling or we have to go to this curriculum or whatever. And if you don't support me, then you don't care about children. Five years later, you've got a different leader, also with an EV, who say, we have to go against, away from that curriculum and against block scheduling and against this. And if you don't support me, you don't care about children. I think that if we, if we eliminate the, the, frankly, not very credible sources of expertise, the, the, the advanced leadership degree, we make it harder for people to play those games. And then ed leaders have to rise and, and fall based on what actually makes sense. Something my, actually something some of the active in the union pointed out to me, um, my own district, and I have to say again, our current school board president and our current uh, superintendent are, are the best leaders I've seen. They're, they're, this is not to blame them. <laughs> this is fire leadership. Um, in a six-year period, we had 23 separate initiatives adopted and then dropped on the secondary level alone. I mean, if we have that kind of leadership, naturally, neither teachers or parents are going to take it seriously. I mean, they might claim to take it seriously if they want to get promoted, but they're not really going to take it seriously. And I think unions can point those things out to us. If an individual teacher does, they might get in trouble. If union leadership does, there's a certain amount of protection there, um, uh, which is why unions shouldn't, should never own the table. Teachers shouldn't own the table, but they should have a seat at the table if we want schools to be effective. I've never seen a school that worked by having uh, weak uh, or disempowered teachers. And one final question. I understand you're up for re-election in 2020. Do you have or do you expect to have the endorsement of the teachers union this time around? Uh, I didn't last time, although a lot of them, I think, I think the vast majority of the members voted for me. I did not have the support of leadership. I think I'll probably get it this time around, and we'll have to see. Um, I don't really know my opponent very well. I'm sure she's a fine person, but um, I, I expect I'll get it this time around just because I do, I do listen to them a lot, and I don't always agree with them, but they know my door is always open. And I actually, this is kind of interesting. In, in most districts, including mine, teachers are told not to talk to school board members. Um, because they might confuse us, <laughs> and I think that's crazy, right? I mean, what if what if Donald Trump could tell Congress uh, not to talk to the news media? They should get all their information from him. That's that's not a good model of government. That's not how our constitutional system works. Um, you need to get information from a lot of sources. So um, I often will seek teachers out and just give them a call and say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And and I think that to be a good school member, to know enough to hold the administration accountable, I think you have, 
you have to get multiple sources of information, not just administration. Um, and, and the union should be one of those factions that you, you do consult. Um, strangely enough, our, our school board training is just the opposite, and I think that's, that's a mistake. I think that's something that we ed reformers really need to look at and try to reframe not just at, at leadership, but, but how school boards work as well. My guest today has been Bob Moranto, professor at the University of Arkansas and member of the Fayetteville Public Schools Board. You can find his blog post, Strange Bedfellows, Why School Reformers Should Rethink Teacher Unions, online at educationnext.org. Bob, thanks for being part of the podcast. Marty, thanks so much. I so enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.